You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast pace. They can go no huddle. They can go two tight ends. They can go play action. They can take shots down the field. They can run the ball with Cam. I love the options here. Opinionated. Mac Jones was a safe pick, but his ceiling is just Kirk Cousins. To the point, the Red Sox are better than I expected. I still don't think they're winning the division. The Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Brady Farkas Show right here on a Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We may need to change that intro again because the Red Sox just might win the division. 15-1 to 1 is the beatdown they put on the Kansas City Royals today. A seven-game win streak, a perfect homestand, a three-and-a-half game lead in the division. Red Sox got it rolling right now as they head out west for the weekend. And because we had Red Sox baseball during the day... We've got a full Brady Farkas show now. 90 minutes going up until 7 o'clock. It is a huge show today. We'll talk more about today's historic day in college sports and more about what the name, image, and likeness stuff means for college athletes and for UVM specifically. At 545, we're bringing in back Nathan Rohde, the prep baseball report. He saw U32 standout Owen Kellington pitch at the MLB Draft Combine, saw him in person. And he has some new information for us there. Intern Jack is hanging out with us as well. If you want to text us any thoughts, you can do so on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Jack, let's get going. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're always online at sticksandstuff.com. With the win today and the win last night and the wins a couple days ago, a couple days ago, a couple days ago, the Red Sox are 20 games over 500. They are 51 and 31. And uh, we are now officially past the halfway point of the Red Sox season. They have played 82 games. They have more games behind them now than in front of them. How quick was that? Unbelievable. Unbelievably quick. It feels like April 1st when they were getting rained out against the Orioles and getting swept by the Orioles was just yesterday. So I saw this question from Bo Sox Injection, which is a fansided.com Red Sox blog. I thought it was a great question. And I put the question out to all of you, 802-585-3026. With the Red Sox now 20 games over over 500, in the second half of the season, what are you most excited for? They gave four choices. Are you most excited for the Red Sox having the number four pick in the upcoming MLB draft? Are you most excited for the Red Sox calling up more prospects? Are you most excited for Chris Sale's return? Or are you most excited for the MLB trade deadline and how the Red Sox may um, augment their roster as they chase the World Series. I know my answer. Jack, I'll ask you the question, too, while the Texers get in. I'm going to say Chris Sale coming back. I mean, this is the guy that 
you traded for all those assets to come to Boston and be the ace of this staff. And that is the guy who I want to see wearing, wearing home whites every five days, pitching for the Red Sox deep into October. That's for, the guy I want to see on the mound. For me, this was a tough call. I racked my brain about this last night. This was a tough call, but I, I know I'm going with the unpopular choice. And I know I'm going with the not sexy choice. Well, I am it's wrong. If it's not Chris Sale, it's wrong, straight up. I am most excited in the second half of the season for the Red Sox having the number four pick in the draft. Oh, my God. I know people. I, I know. This isn't football, man. This isn't basketball. This I, is baseball. I know I'm in the minority on this. I know it's an, an answer that doesn't even impact this year. But I am looking forward to the Boston Red Sox being, as Haim Bloom says, sustainably good. This year felt like it would be one-off good. I want sustainability. I want the Red Sox to be in a position to win the World Series every single year, not just this year. I am, look, I had it in my mind all along, all along. For the last eight months, I've been saying I didn't think the Red Sox were going to be competitive. I have looked at this entire season with an eye towards the future. And even though they're playing well now, and even though they may make the playoffs now, and even though they may make, win the division now, I am not changing that eye towards the future. I get excited by High and Bloom rebuilding the farm system and what it could mean. Yes, of course I want the team to win the World Series this year. But I don't think they're going to. I think that they're flawed. And yes, other teams are flawed too, but I think the Red Sox are flawed. So if they're not going to win it this year... I want to focus on building an organization that is built to win the World Series consistently beyond this year. And having the number four pick in the draft is a valuable commodity in doing that. And by the way, like we saw with the Patriots, who had a top 15 pick, I don't think we're ever really going to see the Red Sox pick at number four again. This is a chance for the Red Sox to get a foundational player. It's a chance for them to get a generational player. They're not going to pick this high again very often. So when you talk about how to build a sustainable winner, you do it through the farm system. Hyam Bloom knows that, and the number four pick in the draft should be the crown jewel of that farm system and should allow the Red Sox an opportunity to win the World Series for a decade. This year, we, look, Danny Santana and Marwin Gonzalez are not part of this team's long-term future. No. If the Red Sox win anything this year, it still feels like it's being done with a bunch of guys that won't be here long-term. I want guys that will be here long-term, and the number four pick in the draft is certainly that. The winningest team in baseball is flawed. The winningest team in baseball is flawed, yes. That is, that is the logic that you are presenting look, to all of Vermont right now. Look at the Red Sox, though. Look, and I know that I'm catching heat from you on this. You bet. The Red Sox are flawed, and they have relied on a lot of flukiness to get to this point. Think about this. Yeah, 16 to 1, or 15 to 1 seems fluky. The Red Sox. Sweeping the Yankees twice seems fluky. The Red Sox have the best record in one run games. The best record in one run games. In the, in the month, in the. Now, the last two games have my stats skewed, but before that, before the last two games, it was like. 10 of the last 21 games, the starter failed to even go five innings. The bullpen was dominant in June. Bullpens are volatile. One-run games are volatile. And the Red Sox have excelled in that. And that can't last forever. And the other thing that can't last forever is health. And the Red Sox have been so 
unbelievably healthy this year. Look around the Red Sox, okay? Tampa Bay has lost Tyler Glass now. They lost Chris Archer. They've lost multiple pieces. Maybe they get those guys back and they start to, you know, do what they're supposed okay. to do in the division. Sox have lost Chris Sale and Christian Arroyo. Okay, they, Chris Sale, yes. Do not give me Christian Arroyo. For, for Christian Arroyo has arguably been one of the better, best, better hitters on this team, one of the most consistent guys. The, the Toronto Blue Jays lost George Springer, six years, $150 million. They lost him for the entirety of this season, save for 15 games. Okay, They lost him. They lost Teoscar Hernandez, a pillar of their offense, due to COVID issues. They lost Kirby Yates, their closer. They lost multiple bullpen pieces. The, the Toronto Blue Jays have been decimated by injuries. The, the Rays lost maybe the best starter in the sport. Well, not outside DeGrom. The best starter in the division. And you're giving me Christian Arroyo as a comparison to that. I'm giving you Christian Arroyo as a comparison to... Because they've had nobody else hurt. They have been... Look... They're much better than we thought. Absolutely. They're much better than I thought. I'll take the L on saying that they're going to finish fourth. They're not going to finish fourth. I'll take the L on thinking they were going to lose 100 games. But they are... They are flawed. And they have benefited from other teams... They're flawed because they were lucky? They have benefited from other teams, you know, misfortunes around them. And good teams can capitalize on that. I understand that. But I don't think the Red Sox are winning the World Series. I do not think... They are as good as the Astros. I do not think that they're as good as a healthy White Sox team. And we will see how healthy the White Sox are because they also have been decimated by injuries. But in October, if Luis Robert is back and Madrigal is maybe back, I think the White Sox are better than the Red Sox also. And if Glasnow is back, I'd say the Rays are right there with them too. I do not think the Red Sox are winning the World Series, which circles me back to my point. If you're not going to win the World Series, then what are you really playing for? You're playing for the future. And if you're playing for the future, then the number four pick in the draft is the thing that excites me the most. I'm sorry it doesn't excite you, because whoever they pick, we won't see here for two to five years. But look at how World Series is our one. World Series is our one by having a team full of homegrown players. That's how the Astros did it. That's how the Royals did it. You can't say that's how the Astros did it. That's how the Dodgers did it. And that is how the 2018 Red Sox did it. With a series of homegrown players. And I want that next wave. The Benintendi, Betts, Bogarts, Devers wave. I want the next wave. And it's being built as we speak. Duran, Cassis, Jeter Downs, Connor Wong, Tanner Houck and whoever the number four pick in the draft is. That is the next Red Sox core, and that is what I'm excited about. So then who do they need to get at the deadline to be able to win the World Series? Because you, you're you writing the Sox off right now. They're winning his team in baseball. Brady Farkas is writing off right now. Who is the game changer on July 31st that will be putting on a Sox jersey to help them make a push in October? Whit Merrifield. You think Whit Merrifield? Well, I mean, I think they need a bat, too. Whit Merrifield of the Royals is the guy Lou Merloni was mentioning. And last, uh, it was 2000 in. He's on a long-term contract. He's only, he's up after next year. And he's 32 years old. The Royals, as we saw, they're going nowhere. They're 14 oh, yeah. games under 500. So holding on to Whit Merrifield until he's 34 does them nothing. So two years ago, in 2019, we were talking about Whit Merrifield as a Red Sox prospect, or target, rather. And I was like, there's no way in hell that you're going to get Whit Merrifield because he's got four years left on his deal, okay? This year, with this year and one more year, at a relatively affordable price, 
I, I think the Royals are much more likely to sell Whitmerryfield. I don't, or Whitmerryfield rather. I don't know if the Sox. I don't want the Sox to totally deal from that prospect core. If they could get away with not trading Cassis Duran, Downs, if they could get away with not doing that, look, Jay Groom and whoever else you want to get can go to Kansas City. I just don't want to trade from that big nucleus that we're talking about. Well, Jay Groom's been in the system for, it feels like, almost 10 years at this point. I know it hasn't been that long, but it feels like a long time. If you're, if the Sox are the winningest team halfway through the season, 81 games into the season, now 82 games, why are we talking about them not making a run at this at this thing? Only the Giants are the are the team in baseball that's chasing them right now for that home field advantage in the World Series. I don't think Heim Bloom is gonna is gonna sell off the future to try to win now because I think deep down he knows that this team is. Not the best team in baseball. The Red Sox have always been a team, though, that sell off those prospects and that they would end up drafting, as you are excited for, to get assets to win the World Series. I look at Jose Iglesias. I look at Yoan Moncada. Yeah, that Dave Dombrowski. You're talking about other iterations of general managers here. Heim Bloom is not built that way. Heim Bloom, though, has not won a World Series. He is because not. Because he sells off his assets he when is, they become major league talent. Well, he never was a GM before, so that's that's not true. It, well, so, he was part of that front office. So he is going to do the best for the long term. His, his code word is sustainability. He's not going to deal, uh, you know, four future pillars and stars for, you know, a half a year of somebody. He's not going to do that. He is going to play this the right way. They'll 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 go out and get a you know a fourth starter type. They'll go yeah. out and add to the Jose Barrios. He's yeah. He's not a fourth starter. He's an ace. Okay. He's not good. There's an no. ace on a on a on a poor team. Chris Sale is the future because he's on a long term deal. He's coming back around the time of the draft. That's the future right now. That's the deadline move. If you're talking about who's the guy that's going to make the move, that's the deadline move. I am just not willing to put all of my eggs in the guy in the guy's basket from coming back from Tommy John surgery. I'm not willing to do that. Phil in Berlin says, Brady, you're crazy. There's no such thing as long-term in professional sports anymore. Half the high draft picks are bust. Stay in the moment. Phil, that is not you're my tr- best friend, man. That is not true, Phil. Okay. All of sports is long-term now. That is why you see prospect hoarding. That is why you see draft pick hoarding. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Hey, another prospect, but this one is one of our own. Owen Kellington, U32 ace. His name might be called on draft night a couple of weeks from now. He was at the MLB draft combine putting work in recently. Nathan Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report saw him. What does he think? of Vermont's next star. That's next right here on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas show here on a Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. You know, usually Friday is our weekly diamond discussion. I bumped it to Thursday today because we had day Red Sox baseball. It felt like a baseball-heavy day, so we're going all in today on our diamond discussion, all thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. Joining us again, we had him a couple of weeks ago, is Nathan Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report 
He just saw U32 star and now U32 graduate and MLB draft hopeful Owen Kellington pitch at the first ever Major League Baseball draft combine last weekend. And I know he's got some thoughts. So, Nathan, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. A week and a half out from the draft, so things are things are getting nuts, and we're trying to get all this content rolled out, getting ready for you know a draft broadcast. So uh, a lot of uh, very short nights of sleep right now. <laughs> How does the July draft change your life from the June draft that we're accustomed to? Uh, it just makes it harder. <laughs> I mean, usually right now I'm in the middle of a lot of summer travel uh, and focusing on the next year, you know, like for now. So it would be 2022. And yeah. I did go to an event a couple of weeks ago. It was a tournament for us down at Lake Point in Georgia and saw some 22s. And But when I was down there, I was like, guys, like, I'm going to take a glimpse, but I, I can't bear down right now. I still got yeah. 21 on the brain. Yeah. Still got to focus on that. So it definitely the crossover uh is tough um i mean i know a lot of these guys i have a lot of crossover as it is anyway because i see younger guys i'm just not as focused on them um uh, but the other part of it too is just the uh, it's just the waiting like no, now it's like you know you got an extra month almost 6 weeks and you know we're all just ready for it to be done and over with um you know not that we're not excited about the draft cuz we always are but it's kind of like we're not used to still waiting for it at this point, especially when it's been so long since some of these guys played. Yeah. Um, tell me about the setup of the first ever Major League Baseball draft combine. I mean, how many days was it? How many people were there? What was it like? So it was, I think everybody arrived on a Monday, and then they had they were supposed to have high school games on Tuesday uh, as well as some workout stuff, but we had some weather here in North Carolina, and um, so that got pushed to Wednesday. Um, so instead of, you know, two games, they basically did extended games. So we had like a 10-inning game and then an eight-and-a-half-inning game, and, um, and then they had workouts on Thursday and Friday. Friday was televised. Um, they had some college guys throw bullpens on that Thursday that they showed on the tel- on the uh, broadcast on Friday, and then Saturday we came back for the uh, a couple more high school games uh, with those guys, and that's when I saw Callington and, uh, and there was a there was a good crowd there. Um, I think uh, there was a good like public crowd too. There were a lot of people that were highly interested in coming out um, and just watching some baseball. Um, there was a very large contingent of, uh, of scouts, a lot of high level guys, cross checkers, directors, general managers, um, special assistants, that sort of thing. Um, I didn't go to the workouts on Thursday and Friday, had a lot of draft mm-hmm. prep to get done. Um, but I was at the games on that, on those wet, on the Wednesday and Saturday. Um, and, and it was good. It was, there was a lot of guys that I got to check off, um, that I didn't get a chance to see this spring and would have liked to obviously see you know, more at bats and more extended outings, but given the chance, it was certainly better than nothing. So you saw Owen Kellington pitch actually in a game setting. This was not just bullpens. This is not where we think of the NFL combine where it's just workouts and throwing against air. You saw him pitch against real batters. How did he look? Yeah, he looked good. Um, you know, it was, it was a game setting. Um, you know, and now again, it's not like he's, you know, pitching for U32 in a state championship and the energy's high. You know, showcase games like this, the energy's usually a lot lower. Mm. Um, but he is facing live hitters and he's trying to get them out. And 
the first thing that jumped out to me was just the athleticism, just how it operated on the mound, the you know the the movement patterns and all of that, the ease of the delivery. Um, he's very clearly an athlete. That was uh, that was good to see because we like athletes. Athletes make adjustments easily, and you have to make adjustments to keep moving up in this game. And so that's something that it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be easier for a guy like him. Uh, and then the fastball was, you know, 90 to 92, which in this day and age is kind of modest, but not bad. You yeah. know, considering his athleticism, there's projection in the frame. So I, I do like the idea of that fastball making a jump down the road. Not to mention that he's from Vermont. It's a low mileage arm, um, you know, hasn't really put a lot of innings or pitches on that arm. So, you know, easily see him making a jump. Um, but you know, the curveball showed some, uh, showed some power to it, had some good break. He didn't always land it. Um, you know, but I'm sure he had some time off and then you like, you fly down to North Carolina. It's a little hotter down here than Vermont, I would <laughs> expect. Uh, so a little adjustment there and then jumping out there facing guys that you've never seen before. You can expect some inconsistencies, uh, to your game, but the breaking ball looked pretty good. He also showed a slider. Um, you know, just kind of wrinkled one in there that I thought was pretty decent. And then the changeup, he had a pretty good feel for it, maintains the arm speed on it and looks like a fastball coming out of his hand. So, you know, he's got four pitches. I would say, you know, he's, you know, going to probably focus on, you know, the fastball curveball changeup moving forward, the slider, something in that maybe he just kind of throws it in there to keep guys off balance down the road. But those first three definitely look like um, they all have the chance to be at least average pitches for him down the road. Nathan Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report talking with us here on the Brady Farkas Show about Owen Kellington and his draft chances and what we saw from him at the MLB Draft Combine here not too long ago. Um it's amazing the statistics on Kellington's year here. I, I, you know, I have to preface it. Yeah, but it's Vermont. But 91% of his outs were strikeouts this year. He mm-hmm. completely dominated everybody he faced in Vermont. Did he look? Did he look overwhelmed at all by the big increase in competition that you saw? No, not at all. I would definitely wouldn't say that he was overwhelmed. Uh, probably is are some of the better headers that he's faced, um, and maybe. You know, if you ask him specifically, he'd probably be like, you know, yeah, that was a lot tougher or somebody did something or I've not seen guys like this before. But in terms of just seeing him from a distance and not having talked to him personally, like he didn't look that phased by the guys that were rolling out there, all of which are, you know, draft hopefuls and, you know, slam dunk, you know, division one power five type players. Um, so the fact that he handled himself in that setting, uh, considering he probably doesn't have a ton of experience with something like that, um, definitely it is noteworthy. You know, we talked last time about a month ago about him and said, you had said you think he's would, you know, would get drafted, but it's all going to come down to how signable he mm-hmm. is and whether he wants to sign or go to UConn. Um, generally from your experience, like when you talk about high school guys, is there a round where you're like, okay, he's got to get drafted in the top five rounds for it to be worth it? It's got to be in the top ten rounds for it to be worth it? Or did it mm-hmm. truly just vary case to case? I mean, it does vary case to case. But, again, you know, there's certainly ca- a, ca- a lot of caveats with that. In in general, I say, like, top three rounds, top five, depending on some situations. Cause, and I don't know Owen Kellington well enough to know, like, his academics. But there are guys, yep. you know, out there that are, like, school is just, not on the table for them. They don't like yeah. school or academics. You know, the, the grades are low. So, you know, going to college maybe isn't really an option. So, like, you can 
kind of fiddle with that as saying, you know, fifth round or later, you know, is fine because, you know, they just want to get into pro ball, get the signing bonus and move on. But a guy like Callington, I would just make assumptions that, you know, if the money's not right, he's perfectly fine going to UConn and, um, you know, he's, a, you know, at least an average student, maybe I would, you know, um, just to kind of lump it in there. So I would say top three to maybe five rounds. Now, obviously, there's a lot of accounting decisions in that because we've seen guys go as high schoolers in the fifth round and get second or third round money because of the way that teams, you know, allot their money. You know, they get discounts higher up. And then, in, you know, the eighth and ninth round, they take $1,000 guys. So it gives them some room to play with. But in general, I would say top five rounds and then – that 11th to 13th round is usually where we see some really interesting picks because you can make a run at a high school guy. You're not going to give a guy in that in those rounds seven figures usually. It happens very rarely. But you can give him 500, 700,000, 800,000. Um, but if you don't sign him, there's no penalty for not signing him. You don't lose that out of your pool. So it's one of those things where if you don't have a – good feel for his signability and or and no one does and that he falls well you can take him in the 11th round and you can talk to him and you know maybe by the signing deadline he's kind of like oh yeah 500,000 is fine with me let's go or there is no like it's not a million we're not talking all right he goes to school you picked him you made your you had your shot you tried what didn't work out whatever but you at least don't lose your uh you know part of your pool uh and with the pools, you know, how it's done is you you can't risk that. You can't lose out on that money. And that's why we've seen since this has been implemented that typically 98, 99% of the picks in the top 10 rounds sign every year. And I don't see us deviating from that uh, percentage while the r- current rules are in place. Nathan, I'll get you out of here on this one. Red Sox question. Sox number four pick in the draft. We all just watched the College World Series, Jack Leiter of Vanderbilt looked really good. Any chance he falls to four for the Sox? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, if you had asked me that six months or a year ago, I would have said you're crazy. Um, but, I mean, crazier things have happened. I definitely think that there is a chance uh, for the Red Sox getting him at four. I, I don't want to say it's a weird year. I think it's actually probably more of a normal year. Like in recent years with Spencer Torkelson and Casey Mize, uh, even Adley Rutschman, like we've had a very clear cut. But more like, what are you looking pick. for? Like a guy that absolutely separated himself from the pack. Not that the other guys weren't good enough. It just, he, it was like a, he was a slam dunk guy. This year, we've got five guys who are all legitimate 1 1 candidates. And a couple of guys outside of that that can find their way in depending on how a team likes them. So, you know, there's definitely a chance that Leiter, you know, gets to the Red Sox. And if he doesn't, I think there, you know, there's a few other guys that are, they'll certainly be happy with. It's one of those years where you actually feel pretty happy about not picking one because you just kind of react to whatever falls to you and you've got a pretty good uh, option there. It's not like, you know, every good buddy is going to be off the table and you're left with, you know, uh, slim pickings in that next group of guys. There's a lot of guys at the top. It's a top heavy draft. Um, so no matter which way you slice it, whoever the Red Sox get it for, he's going to be a perennial all-star caliber player. Well, that's what we're hoping for. Nathan Rohde, Prep Baseball Report, with us on our Thursday this week, Diamond Discussion, thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph for every visit to the home run. Nathan, we appreciate the scouting report on Owen Kellington, a little Sox talk as well, man. We appreciate you. We'll talk to you again soon.
Sounds good, Brady. Anytime. All right. There goes Nathan Rohde, the Prep Baseball Report. Good stuff there. A lot of great information on Owen Kellington. Now he's seen him firsthand. Uh, interesting that he thinks he's really got to go in the top three rounds to guarantee that he would go pro. And if it's not the top three, then he might fall into the 10, 11, 12, 13 round range. So we'll see what happens. The draft is coming up here officially less than two weeks from now. So, uh, And by the way, when he tells me that the Red Sox might be able to get Jack Leiter of Vanderbilt at number four, that's why I'm excited about the draft. He just said it. Perennial all-star. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for with the Red Sox. So great stuff from Nathan. We'll get more into uh, what he had to say in our takeaways on the other side of 6 o'clock. But when we come back, the NCAA allowing student-athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness beginning today. I've sat on this for 24 hours, and I've got more observations, including one way in which I think UVM can be helped by this. Jack, legal ID the news. Looking for a new career? Pro Driver Training is Vermont's premier truck driver training school, offering Class A and B CDL, passenger, and advanced skills training, with locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at ProDriverCDL.com. Taking classes isn't really my thing. Not a problem. Pro Driver Training uses a combination of lab, behind the wheel, and classroom training. They can break things down in a way that's understandable to you. I'm pretty busy. I don't think I have the time. Pro Driver Training will work with you with flexible scheduling. I'm Evan Hallstrom. I got my CDL Class A at Pro Driver Training. Liz and Alex made me feel very comfortable and adjusted training to my needs. At Pro Driver Training, success is their goal. A commercial driver's license can open up a whole new world of opportunities. Pro Driver Training, with locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at ProDriverCDL.com. Now it's back with Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. If you miss any of the show or any of our exclusive interview content, like with Nathan Rohde today, who we just had on a little while ago, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe to the podcast, thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swan Lumber. I'm going to get to the uh, name, image, likeness stuff here in a second, but I do want to read a text on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, Tom and East Montpelier. Brady, I don't think the Red Sox care too much about preseason saber metrics or analytics. At their best, they're all about heart, grit, passion, and never giving up. And they've proven that more than ever this season with 26 come-from-behind victories. Hopefully, even you were starting to admit they have a shot at the division with the second-best record overall in baseball through halfway point of the season. I don't want to be made into some Red Sox hater here. I like the Red Sox. I support the Red Sox. I've championed a lot of what the Red Sox have done. And I do believe now the Red Sox have a chance at the playoffs, and I do believe now they have a chance at the division. I, however, don't believe that if they win the division, it will be because they were just out and out better than everyone else in the division. I do believe that there has been a degree of good fortune here to how the Red Sox have played. 26 come from behind victories. That's not something you can just predict. Yes, they have heart. Yes, they have grit. Yes, they don't give up. That is a fluky, once-in-a-lifetime stat. When you talk about winning one-run one games at the clip that they're winning, also fluky. When you, We talk all the time about how bullpens are the most volatile position on the field, and the Red Sox have had an incredible bullpen, especially recently. That, too, is fluky. They have overcome poor starting pitching because of 
this great bullpen they've had recently. And then you factor that with Toronto being injured, the Yankees being injured, and the Rays being injured. It has all added up to what so far has been a magical 82 games for the Red Sox. But you know what? They shouldn't apologize to me or anybody else for that. If they win the division, based on all of those things, you don't apologize for it. Okay? The Phoenix Suns are going to the NBA Finals. They didn't beat the Clippers at their best with Kawhi Leonard. They shouldn't apologize. If the Atlanta Hawks beat the Bucks to get to the Finals and do it because Giannis can't play, they shouldn't apologize. In the same way, you, you know, LeBron James shouldn't apologize for a title he's won. Or was, it doesn't matter. Okay, if you can do it, do it. But I don't believe that out and out on paper the Red Sox are the best team in this division. They may end up with the best record. I do not believe that they were ever the best team in this division. If okay, broke, don't fix it. Then that's fine. But they are not the best team skill-wise in this division. All right, a couple more thoughts today on the name image likeness stuff. This is a truly landmark day for college athletics, okay? Student-athletes can start making money today off their name, image, and likeness. Paul Feinbaum of ESPN, Jack, he talked about just how big this day is. Today is the most significant day in the history of the NCAA, and that is not an understatement. Because of what is crumbling today, the, the model of the NCAA is, is coming down, and you can never put it back up again. The fact that the, the NCAA is really worthless after today is also a very significant moment. Amateurism as we know it is dead as of today. And we've already seen student-athletes announcing partnerships and deals that can net them money. I have strong takes on this, and I'll get to some of them at the end of the show. But I also have unanswered questions about all this. Things that I've sat on for 24 hours, and I am now wondering about the name, image, likeness stuff. I truly wonder if these... Money-making opportunities will make local athletes more likely to go to college near home. Think about this. If in their hometown, everybody loves a hometown hero. So a college athlete, or, or rather a high school athlete who has grown through his community or her community and is a known commodity, will they choose to go to college near their hometown because they are a known commodity and can turn that already built reputation into money. I wonder if that will be something that we see. When you look at UVM, okay, UVM men's basketball, Ben Shungu, Mr. Basketball in Vermont, Michelle and Diashimier, Mr. Basketball in Vermont from Rice, he's going to UVM beginning next year. Kevin Garrison? Kevin Garrison also. These guys are known commodities in this state and in this area. Now, they chose UVM even prior to this, but would they have been more likely to choose UVM because, hey, I already got a relationship with that car dealer. I already eat at that restaurant. I already know that business owner. There's already built-in money-making opportunities. Oh, I can go speak at this school. I can go out on the speaking circuit and talk to high school kids. I can host camps with my name on it here in my hometown. I'm curious about that. So if you're talking about, here in Vermont, a great hockey player, and UVM has not hit on home-bred hockey players here recently. Maybe Todd Woodcroft will change that. 
But if you can hit on homebred hockey players and homebred basketball players because they see money-making opportunities in their community being easier than leaving, that is something that absolutely could work to their advantage. Jack, we just talked about Owen Kellington. Yeah. If UVM had baseball and Owen Kellington stayed here and played in college, I would think he would be an incredible, mar- an incredibly marketable athlete, and therefore there would be partnership opportunities there. I, I mean, like, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that can work to UVM's benefit, but I also wonder if it goes the other way. You know, when you have, hey, John Becker's really good at recruiting men's basketball players from Indiana. Yeah. Are those kids now also going to stay in Indiana where they are known commodities? I mean, you know, you think about growing up, being a hometown hero is a big deal. And everybody follows the local star, even when they leave. But if they stay, there's an unbelievable resonance there with the local community and everybody's supporting that local athlete and if that local athlete turns out to be good there's a lot of partnerships available there by staying home i wonder if that is a byproduct of this i think you bring up all awesome points because you know if owen kellington you know if if baseball had was at uvm owen kellington definitely is going to strongly consider coming to uvm and then he can partner with kevin smith sports or you know whoever you know he wants to to help promote a local business that he you know probably utilized as a young athlete in little league and you know aau basketball whatever it was and he you know gets to start paying it back to to that to that business and, and and collects a little stipend on the side i just for Vermont, I feel like it's a little bit of an exception because in the case of like Ben Shangu and any hockey athletes that come from SB or Rice or BHS in the local areas, you know, they go to a school that's already an established D1 proven program. And with Ben Shangu, he could have played anywhere in the country, you know, mid-major, of course. But he chose to stay in Vermont because he's from Vermont. And UVM has a great basketball program to begin with. They're in the tournament, you know, pretty frequently. So for for Ben, I think, you know, and for some of these other athletes, it just made sense to come to Burlington. Maybe you see more of that, but I don't think in the case of Ben Shangu that they would have tilted the scales in any direction. Well, let's see. That, I mean, and he was an unheralded recruit. So let's, let's, let's play the game out. If you have a player that is told by UVM, look, you're going to come in here as a freshman and be a starter, mm-hmm. and you're from the area, you, you got a chance then right away to capitalize. That's easier than going somewhere else and sitting on the bench for a year and working your way up, and by senior year you're scoring eight points a game. If, yeah. you, if you have a chance to come to Vermont and know that you're going to play and make an impact instantly on the court or on the ice or in the pool or on the track or in the lacrosse field, whatever, those partnerships will matter early. Another question that I have about this is simply, how much will the money potential motivate student-athletes? Okay, How much will the potential of money motivate student-athletes when they're thinking about where they're going to go to school, where they're going to play? My guess is there will be a limited pool of athletes that are doing that. They're 15 years old. Hey, I'm number one. I'm the, I'm the number one rated quarterback by ESPN. Where can I go that will help my brand the most? There will be a few athletes that think yeah. that way, but by and large, I think student athletes will still go about the recruiting process in the way they always have. Wasn't Zion committed to Clemson and then ended up 
decommitting and then committed to Duke because it was good for the Zion brand? Could be. And I, I don't know that for a fact, but that is the kind of... Kind of and, uh, Zion is from South Carolina, near Clemson, so they also probably saw him and knew about him earlier before yeah. even Duke got on the train. But I think, by and large, most kids will be motivated by playing time and opportunity and the chance to go pro, the chance to get to the tournament. There will be a few motivated by money, but who will see financial opportunity based on where they go. But I don't think, by and large, 13, 14, 15 people are going to be thinking that way. Where it will make a massive difference is on the transfer market. Oh, okay. 100%. When you have somebody who is 20, 21, and now a little more business savvy, a little more real life savvy, a little more in need of money. And educated. And a little more educated about this. They're going to see transferring as a way to get them a better athletic situation and to get them paid. And that is going to be a crazy thing that now becomes an element in an already crazy transfer portal. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio talked with us about that yesterday. You're a player from all the college and you see that kind of potential gold that could be out there if you're able to go to a bigger school and make your name and somebody wants to benefit from that name. That's what a lot of coaches have to really guard themselves against because there may be plenty of players to have friends to play bigger schools. Let's say these guys are doing well financially off the football field, off the basketball court. You know the guys are going to talk and they're going to let them know exactly how much money they're making. That could be something as well that could be a part of the transfer portal that will bring another level of complete, oh, my goodness, and what's going on here with college basketball. That is going to be a big issue for UVM. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a big issue. That's going to be an issue for UVM. The transfer portal is already crazy. Coaches already have to re-recruit their own players every year in order to keep them there. Think about this scenario. Okay, a couple years ago, UVM had the, had the Duncan brothers, Ernie, Everett, and Robin. They're all from Indiana. They're here at UVM, and they're, they're thinking, okay, I'm making a couple hundred bucks, whatever. Or not, I'm, do, I'm making something, but I'm not killing it. Then they go home to Indiana. And they talk with their buddies. Indiana's a basketball-rich state, and they got a buddy who plays at Purdue and a buddy who plays at Indiana. And they're like, whoa, I'm making thousands, man. I'm cleaning up. And they're like, you're making thousands, huh? Well, how can I get on on that? Okay, maybe I need to transfer and go to a bigger school where I've got more resources and more opportunity like that. That kind of thing will happen. And, look, it could happen... It could happen to UVM's benefit. D2 kid talks to his buddies and says, oh, I better go D1, and maybe UVM steals a kid. But coaches are going to be forced to re-recruit their players every single year now based on financial opportunities that kids are going to see. Well, this happens in mid-major schools, whether players can profit off their likeness or not, because the idea with mid-major schools is that, and Quinnipiac University is a prime example of this, players play well for two or three years, and then they go and they look to make that jump up to an SEC or an ACC school. So Quinnipiac had this point guard, Rich Kelly. He was a zero-star commit coming out of Fairfield, Connecticut. Ends up coming on to Quinnipiac. He's a three-year starter. His senior year, he ends up transferring to Boston College, where he can play against Duke and Miami and bigger schools, and he gets national broadcast time. Ends up playing well. But that was a move for him where he was going to just kind of take the next step for his basketball career. You can see this same thing happening here, but it comes to marketability, right? If the Duncan brothers go and they, they transfer to a, a big D1 school, they're not going to get the same money because they're, they're not as good as the guys who were already recruited to possibly for the D1 school. Again, we can, we can go back and forth on the possibilities of this going both ways. I can see a scenario where 
a guy at UVM goes home and talks to his buddies and wants to jump to a bigger pond. I guess I could also see the other way where, well, damn, I'm a star at Quinnipiac. I play a lot, and I make decent endorsement money, or I can go to Clemson and be nobody again (laughs) money-wise. Like, you know, would I rather make the money and play at not as good a school, or would I rather go to the bigger place and get a chance to go to the tournament and make no money. I, it's going to be totally person-by-person mm-hmm. person dependent, but this thing is nuts. Can I pose my own question real quick? What do you think schools will do with scholarship money? Do you think schools will hold on to extra scholarship money now that players are going to be able to make money on their own? No. No, I think the scholarships will still stay. Okay. I think, I think the one thing that is good, and the one thing I was worried about, is that the NCAA rules clearly state Financial opportunities cannot be used as recruiting incentives. So that helps level the playing field for UVM a bit. Now, I totally think we're going to see people skirt the rules and get in trouble and get in violations, but at least there will be a punishment for it. Because yeah. initially I was under the impression, like, hey, come to the recruiting trip to LSU, and by the way, we're bringing our best car dealer friend here, and here's what we can do for you. Now, that is not supposed to happen. I don't doubt that it will but at least if it doesn't happen in mass, it will level the playing field for UVM a bit. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Look, there are a lot of good things about this for student-athletes. The ability to make money and the ability to not be exploited is a good thing. But let's not act like there aren't a ton of perils as well in this, and we will get to that at about 6.50 here on the Brady Farkas Show. All right, we just spoke to Nathan Rohde, moving back to baseball, of the Prep Baseball Report, and he talked about seeing Owen Kellington play in person. Kellington, the U32 star who just helped U32 win the uh, D2 state championship, sat 90-92 to with a good curveball and a good changeup and a little bit of slider at the Major League Baseball Draft Combine. One thing that Nathan Rohde said really stood out to me, Jack, how it operated on the mound, the you know the the movement patterns and all of that, the ease of the delivery. Um, he's very clearly an athlete. That was uh, that was good to see because we like athletes. Athletes make adjustments easily, and you have to make adjustments to keep moving up in this game. And so that's something that it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be easier for a guy like him. All right, that's good. That's not the one that stood out to me the most. Play me the next one. There's projection in the frame, so I, I do like the idea of that fastball making a jump down the road. Not to mention that he's from Vermont. It's a low-mileage arm, um, you know, hasn't really put a lot of innings or pitches on that arm. So, you know, he easily see him making a jump. Um, but, you know. Okay, so I wanted to cut it there. What he said, he's from Vermont. It's a low-mileage arm. He hasn't thrown a lot. That is a big deal to scouts, and it has been for a while. Scouts love pitchers from the Northeast, and they love pitchers from the Northeast because they're not burnt out, and they're not burnt out because of the weather. The weather doesn't allow you in the Northeast to play all year round. Kids in Florida, kids in Texas, kids in Georgia, kids in Oklahoma, Arizona, they can play all year long. Maybe not Oklahoma, but Texas, Georgia, Florida, California, they can play all year long. And guys throw from young ages, they throw 365 days a year. 
lessons, showcases, high school ball, travel ball. They travel the country. They throw a lot. And by the time they get drafted at 18 or the time they get drafted at 22, there's already a lot of tread on those tires. They're already an injury risk. They're already, you know, facing wear and tear. Owen Kellington doesn't face that. That is a big deal to scouts. I have heard that for years. Now, I don't claim to follow the MLB draft like insane on the prospect front, but I have followed enough individual draft prospects like Owen Kellington and talked to enough draft experts that have all said the same thing. Being a Northeast arm and not having your arm abused by playing so much is a big deal. I heard it with Matt Harvey coming out of Connecticut. I heard it with Ian Anderson of the Braves coming out of my old high school. This is a big deal, and this is a real phenomenon that people are looking for. They look at Owen Kellington, and they say, you know what? He hasn't thrown that many innings in his life. He wasn't able to because of the weather. His arm is fresh. His arm is healthy, and his arm is a lot less likely to get injured. Okay? People love this. And also throw in the fact that Vermont was the most conservative state in the country when it came to COVID restrictions. Owen Kellington didn't throw it all last high school season and likely didn't throw much in the summer season as well because there just wasn't that much baseball being played. So he already hasn't thrown a lot in his life. And then last year he didn't throw hardly at all. His arm's even fresher than it would have been normally. This is a real thing that scouts look for. It's a real thing. And as you think about the draft coming up for Owen Kellington in a week and a half from now, be thinking about that. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. 802-585-3026, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. One other thing, and, and Jack, we don't have the quote on it or the, the clip mm-hmm. on it, and that's fine, but one other thing that really excited me from Nathan Rohde about Kellington is he talked about, and you, you played the clip a bit of his athleticism, but in addition to his athleticism and his raw physicality, which Nathan was a fan of, he said he did not seem overwhelmed by the moment and he did not seem overwhelmed by the competition, okay? And that is very, very important. When you are in a situation you have never been in before, think of something that you have done that has had pressure, and it's a different kind of pressure because you've never been in that situation before. It's easy to clam up. It's easy to get nervous. It's even understandable to get nervous, especially for an 18-year-old. Nathan Rohde painted the picture for us that Owen Kellington was not nervous, was not overwhelmed emotionally, was not overwhelmed physically. He was very, very mature about this whole thing. And I got to assume that the Major League Draft Combine against other high school bats, against college bats, junior college bats, this is the best competition that Owen Kellington has ever played against. And Owen Kellington succeeded in that setting. And I think that's a big deal, to not be overwhelmed by the moment and to not look overwhelmed by the competition. I think that's a huge deal. And, you know, because we see the stats and we see the record and we all have to preface it. Yeah, but it's Vermont and Vermont high school baseball isn't that good. Yada, yada, yada. Well, this wasn't Vermont high school baseball. This was the best in the country. These were some of the most projectable draft bodies in the country. I know Owen Kellington was not nervous emotionally. He was not. He did not shrink mentally, and physically, he looked the part. And I think that's impressive. I believe the last two uh, 
uh, professional baseball draftees to come out of Vermont were also both pitchers. I have Rain Supple and Theo McDowell, who I played with. Yeah, um, so Rain Supple was drafted out of Wake Forest. He was, and, uh, he was also drafted out of CVU. He was. He went to CVU, got drafted by the Cubs late, like yep. 38th round or so. Went to uh, Wake, Wake Forest. Forest. Then got Rockies, like 17th round or so. 14, I believe, yeah. Okay, Theo McDowell's out of Essex, but played prep ball um, in Connecticut, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got drafted by Texas. And he had spent a lot of time as an infielder. But I do believe they are using him as a pitcher yep. um, as well. So, you know, the and this is not a guy from Vermont, but like we're going way back now. Kirk McCaskill, who played at UVM, he was drafted. He was a pitcher as well. I mean, it's mostly pitchers um, coming out of this state when it does happen. So I liked a lot of what we heard there from Nathan Rohde. And we may bring Nathan back on one more time uh, after the draft as well. You know what? I got so much to get to. Know who's saying what today. I'll hold on to that. For tomorrow, But, Jack, when we come back here, we are officially now more than halfway through the Red Sox season. Sox, first team in the majors to get the 50-win mark. Today, first team in the majors to hit the 51-win mark. What has been the biggest positive about the Red Sox' great start to this season? I know my answer, and it doesn't involve anyone playing on the field. That's next right here on WDEV. Now it's back with Brady Parker's show on WDEV. WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here. WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The show brought to you in part by Pro Driver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school. It's online at ProDriverCDL.com. It's ProDriverCDL.com. They offer a class A CDL, B CDL, passenger and advanced skills training there they prepare you for success. If you want to be part of the team as an instructor or as a student, 893-4955. That's 893-4955. And again, you can uh, find them in their convenient locations in Enosburg and in Milton as well. Again, it's Pro Driver Training and ProDriverCDL.com. Jack, before I get to the Red Sox real quick, July 7th, you got any plans? That's it. That's far in advance. That's only six on. days. That's not that far. That's <laughs> next. Uh, that's next Wednesday. It's uh, less well, than a week. Then I, um, I think I have a. I don't know what's what, what's on the table. Well, the table. What's on the table is no afternoon news service and no Brady Farkas show because of day Red Sox baseball four o'clock against the Angels. So we got no chance at getting on for the news or this show. It is Mountain. It is WDEV night at the Mountaineers. If you want in, I totally forgot to ask you. The uh, tickets need to be uh, preserved, uh, reserved here, like ASAP. So uh, let me know by tomorrow. Okay, I'll do my so, best. WDEV night at the uh, Vermont Mountaineers. I am pumped. We'll see if they let me throw out the first pitcher. If Roger Hill is going to snipe it from me, so we'll a see. curveball. Yeah, Four fifty dead center. It's like a fir- men's league. It's a first pitch. It does not uh, does not get judged in that way. So I will right. film it to make sure it does. 802-585-3020. I threw out the first pitch before. I threw it at the Lake Monsters and threw a strike. And the catcher came out to me and said, well, we got a little cut on that one. So that oh, yeah, was good. So, uh, 802-585-3026, Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line. We are now officially past the halfway point of the Red Sox season. Sox, first team in the league to hit 50 wins. They did it last night. First team in the league to hit 51 wins. They did it today by pummeling the Royals 15-1. to I ask you, the texters, this. What has been the biggest positive of this season so far? There's been a lot of them. 
What has been the biggest positive so far for you? For me, it feels like, a, you know, I'm going to get told it's a cop-out answer, and I don't even care. The biggest positive for this team has been Bloom. That's the answer. That's, a, that's fair. Bloom has been the biggest positive for this team this season. After last year, after coming in and trading away Mookie Betts, an MVP and your team's best player and the probable face of the franchise, after that, and then after the team being dreadful last year, 24-36, and 36, I think Heim Bloom was in the crosshairs for a lot of fans. Okay, A lot of fans, I heard it on this show, wanted Heim Bloom gone. How could he trade bets? Oh, they were 24-36. and 36. I guess he's not so smart. Heim Bloom was in the crosshairs, and Heim Bloom, I think, has been the biggest positive and the biggest reason behind this Red Sox resurgence. Okay, Heim Bloom was never in the crosshairs for me, and he has proven why this year. If you want to point to any individual turnaround on this team, I think it likely starts with Heim Bloom being responsible. Okay, If you think that Alex Cora being back is the biggest difference in the 2021 Red Sox, Heim Bloom hired him. Heim Bloom brought him back. The, the attitude that Cora brings, the relationships with the players that he brings, the guys who connect with Cora, okay, Cora's got a lot to do with that, but Hyam Bloom is responsible for bringing him back into the fold. And I wasn't sure that Hyam Bloom initially wanted to bring back Alex Cora. I thought he'd want his own guy. He wanted, um, he wanted his own guy. He wanted to put his own stamp on things and... I thought he was just going to do, you know, we, we see this all the time. GM comes in and puts his own stamp on things. I thought Haim Bloom might want to do that. Tom Karen of Nesson, Red Sox pre- and post-game host, he was on our show January 11th, right after Cora was brought back. And here is what he said to me on January 11th. And from what I understand, uh, the odds were against Haim uh, Bloom wanting Cora, but when they met, Cora's an impressive guy. He's an impressive manager. Uh, and he has said all the right things about the uh, the accountability and the mistakes he made in Houston. I think he won over High and Bloom. And- so Cora won over High and Bloom. And credit to High and Bloom for being open enough to hire Cora and not just trying to do it his own way and not just trying to put his own stamp on things. And but Brady, the bullpen has been great. That's the biggest reason for this team's success. Well. Ian Bloom's got his hands all over that as well. Finding uh, Sawamura out of Japan when no one else did. Trading for Adam Adovino in an incredibly creative deal with the Yankees. Being gutsy enough to make a trade with the Yankees. Drafting Garrett Whitlock? Well, out of the Rule 5 draft. I'm getting to that in a second. So he trades for Adovino, makes a deal with the Yankees. He finds Sawamura. He goes and gets Whitlock. Excuse me, in the Rule 5 draft, and he has hit on Whitlock. I mean, the team got Darwin's Hernandez and Josh Taylor back from COVID last year. That's not necessarily a High and Bloom thing. But High and Bloom has done great things to augment the bullpen. If you are somebody who points to the rotation, even though it wasn't so great in June, if you say the rotation has been better than it was a year ago, yeah, they brought back Erod. But High and Bloom found Garrett Richards brought back Martin Perez, and then traded for Nick Pavetta. Like, the, the rotation is better because of Bloom. 
The bullpen is better because of Bloom. The managing is good because of Bloom bringing Cora back. The relationships are better because Cora's there because Bloom brought him back. And if you're thinking long-term, prospect-wise, everything is better in the farm system because of High and Bloom. Alex Verdugo, young player, arguably the Red Sox, you know, a top-two player on the team. Bloom got him. Connor Wong starts today at catcher. Bloom got him. Uh, Jeter Downs is the only Red Sox player headed to the Futures game. Hein Bloom brought him in, too. So the farms, uh, Winkowski, who they got for Ben Attendees, with the best pitcher at AA this year in Portland, Hyam Bloom's imprint is all over this team's resurgence. And I got receipts from a lot of listeners who wanted Hyam Bloom gone, you know, last November or, you know, two Novembers ago, or, you know, last March when he had to trade Mookie Betts. Jack, yes. do you agree with my high and bloom take? I don't think it's wrong. However, the only clapback I have, and it's not even that deep, is that this is essentially the same roster, with the exception of the bullpen arms that you mentioned and some of the farmhands that he brought in. It's essentially the same starting nine. Kike, Marwin, Danny Santana, they, he got those guys on team-friendly deals, but it's a lot of the same guys, and the manager is just different on the on the field. So and you, a lot of a lot of the players credit, and I think it was was it JD the other day who said Cora just brings that energy that other managers don't. I mean, some yes, there's a lot of Dave Dombrowski guys here, or Ben Charrington guys, even that were drafted a long yeah. ago. So there's some of those guys here, but you know, you mentioned Kike Santana. Marlon Gonzalez. I mean, these no, guys no, are... Neither of them are lighting the candle, though. No. I mean, Kike right now. Three homers out of the leadoff spot in the last week for Kike. Like, these are high and bloom specials. We asked him, you know, Hunter Renfro. We asked him to go find, you know, cheap major league talent that, if it hits, the team looks like this, or that you could flip for future prospects. We asked him to find guys like that. It's why we advocated for Corey Kluver. It's why we advocated, you know, for guys just like this, Hyam Bloom found them, and he got them here, and they've had success. So um, I, I think Hyam Bloom is the reason why, the number one reason why this team is where it is. The resurgence of J.D. Martinez might be the only thing that I can't directly attribute to something that Hyam Bloom did. J.D. Martinez getting his video back, I got to say that that was probably beyond Hyam Bloom's control. But other than that, it's mostly Hyam Bloom. All right. Another Red Sox thing here. Crazy Twitter takes. Let's get to it. The Internet, it's a really weird place. Where did you hear that? The Internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the Internet that isn't true. Where did you hear that? The, the Internet. Internet. It's time for Crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. This one is less of a crazy Twitter take than it is just a crazy take that I wanted to bring up. It comes from the Red Sox pregame show yesterday. So before last night's game against the Royals, Rob Bradford, who we've had on this show, clubhouse insider for the Sox, was talking about Chris Sale's recovery timeline. Sale threw a 20-pitch bullpen yesterday out on the mound at Fenway and seems to be heading towards pretty quickly here a rehab assignment. Here's Bradford on sales timeline. Now you're into July. Now how many rehab assignments are you going to have? You know, I don't know, three and four, or if it goes okay? Boy, I was, I tell you what, I wasn't far off. So he, Rob Bradford said I wasn't far off. His initial projection 
was he had Sale coming back right after July 17th. He had him coming back right after the All-Star break, which July 17th would be that. So that was his initial projection. This was months ago. He said right after the All-Star break. So Bradford says he's getting close to a rehab assignment, three or four rehab assignments if it goes well. Maybe he comes back right around July 17th. I got to say, I think Chris Sale needs more than three to four appearances. This is a guy who hasn't pitched in a game in 18 months, and you're telling me he's going to need three to four appearances? And that He threw 20 pitches yesterday. We're going from 20 pitches with you know guys just standing in there to all of a sudden he's going to do three minor league appearances, ramp it up, he's going to be good to go and help the, the Red Sox win a division. That, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I guess what the Red Sox need to do is, Figure out what you're looking for out of Sale. Like, what are you looking for Chris Sale to be? If you're looking for him to be a bullpen arm, if you're looking to bring him back, get him back quickly into the bullpen, I guess you can get away with a few less rehab outings, but I still need him to get to the point where he can throw multiple innings at a time. This is a team in a division race. If you bring up Chris Sale and say, okay, you could throw one inning on Monday and you can't throw again until Friday, you're hurting your team that's trying to win the division by basically having dead weight in the bullpen there by a guy who can't throw that often. If Sale is going to be in the bullpen, he better be able to go two, three, four innings or at least go an inning on Monday and an inning on Tuesday. You can't just punt a roster spot because you have to baby Chris Sale. You're in a playoff race right now. So if he's going to be here, he's got to be able to contribute. But you're saying... And we have the receipts from earlier in the show that the Sox aren't playing for this year. They're playing for the future. They, so, so they should they should be comfortable with punting a roster spot. They shouldn't be making massive moves that hinder their future. But they're also they're also trying to win this year. But they're also trying to protect their long term investment in Chris Sale. Chris Sale's the future. And I telling said, yeah. me to go, you know, he gets three rehab appearances, and then we're going to pump him out there for eighty five pitches. That doesn't seem real logical. Well, so. What exactly are we looking for Sale to be? Because if you're looking for him to be a starter who can pitch seven innings in October, he's going to need to build up in the minors and need way more than three or four appearances. We're not, because he's not he's throwing like 92 miles an hour right now. He's not coming out here after three appearances and all of a sudden being ready to go 75 pitches. It's not happening. Well, we're not talking about, you know, Joe Schmo guy grabs the ball every fifth day and just eats innings for you. We're talking about Chris Sale, one of the premier left-handed pitchers of the past decade. I mean, right, but and so don't you want to get him to a point where he is healthy and confident that he can be he, real value to you? He could be coming back faster because he is, you know, one of the better pitchers and the, and the Red Sox trust him. There's a, he, the reason why that we are sitting what do you want in Waterbury, Vermont, and the Red Sox training staff is down there telling Chris Sale when he can come back is because they know him and he knows himself. What do Sale, you want to see Chris Sale be? Do you want to see him be a guy who comes out of the bullpen or acts as an opener and throws two innings at a time? Or do you want to see him come back and be a guy who can give you six? You know because what I would that love? will depend how you handle this. You know what I would love Chris Sale to be? I would love Chris Sale to be 2017 David Price in the postseason. Coming out of the bullpen, guy gives you a lockdown two, three innings when you need it the most, and then 2022 he comes back into his regular, uh, you know, number two, number one starter. Then if you have no intention of forcing the starting on Chris Sale, you're going to bring him out of the bullpen, then he doesn't need as many as I think, but I think that he still needs more than three or four. He's going to have to throw an inning. He's going to have to get to the point, okay, an inning on Thursday at AAA, an inning on Tuesday at AAA, 
two winnings the next one. He's going to have to build up here, and you can't just build up in a pennant race at the major league level. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Everyone, yeah, pretty much everyone, has been supportive of college student-athletes now being able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. But there are serious pitfalls to this. We go over that next right here on WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. A couple things quickly to remind you about. Remember the Warren Fourth of July parade we will have live here on WDEV, 10 a.m. on Sunday. That is July 4th. Our own Brent Curtis will be on the call of that, so that's here on WDEV. The show is also brought to you in part by Orange Theory Fitness, a high-intensity interval training program in South Burlington, located on Shelburne Road in the same plaza there as uh, Chipotle, Five Guys. Interesting, Chipotle and Five Guys right next to the gym, but hey, can't help that. So <laughs> high-intensity interval training, great workout. I was there this morning. They're doing COVID-safe classes still, 45-minute classes to uh, you know, you know, know, reduce the amount of traffic in there, reduce the amount of time we're around each other. It's been great. I went there for three years before COVID, saw a huge benefit to my own fitness and, and being in shape. So Orange Theory Fitness in South Burlington. All right, name, image, likeness stuff, Jack. This stuff yep. is crazy, and it's going to get even crazier. There's a lot of good to it. College athletes not being exploited, college athletes being allowed to make money like the regular college student can. There's a lot of good. But there's also some really serious perils to this that everybody needs to be aware of. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying to recognize the perils in this, okay? I really do worry about student-athletes getting so involved in the money side of things that that's going to negatively impact their lives. Let me, let me say this. Being a college student is hard. Being college-aged is hard. Simply put, it's hard. Between school, Division I athletics, relationships, social life, there's a lot of stress that comes with being in college. You're already struggling to make time for everything you have to do in your life as, as a college student. How many kids, how many athletes get so wrapped up in the money side of things that they fall behind in something else that's important? Okay, A football player who needs to put out 50 Twitter video greetings in order to satisfy his money decides to stay up until 2 in the morning and then sleepwalks to class or sleeps through a class or blows class off entirely or somebody was up until... You know, somebody was out in appearance until 11 p.m. the night before a game, and now they play poorly the next day. Being a college student is hard already. When you throw in another layer, another very serious layer, I worry about some student-athletes' ability to balance it all. And we heard that today on ESPN Radio. Christy Dosh, who's a sports business consultant, said as much here about my worry. I've talked to some former student-athletes in a number of different sports who've told me that if they had this opportunity when they were in school, they don't know exactly how they would have balanced it because they do spend so much time with practices and games. But they basically said if there was money on the line, they would have made time for it. 
So hopefully we don't see things like their academics go by the wayside. I think in the beginning, it's nice that this is happening during the summer when they maybe have a little more time to understand what this is going to look like and start creating content. And that'll help them as they move into the school year so that they can schedule themselves accordingly. That's a real concern, though. Not everybody can handle that full of plate. Then, because of that, some student-athletes will get agents, which is also allowed now. People will get representation to help them. How many 18-year-old kids can handle having an agent? How many people are savvy enough at 18, 19, 20 to deal with an agent? There, there will be some kid that is taken advantage of by an agent, and it will, be a, it will be a horror story, and it will be a cautionary tale. That will happen. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you do it all on your own, you get screwed. If you bring in somebody else to help you, there's a chance you get screwed. And that is going to happen, and it will be a problem. I, I wonder if possibly, because this is going to be a lot of local businesses, like what will happen at UVM, if some of the business students pitch themselves as agents to these athletes, and because they're not experienced enough, they, uh, they end up dropping the ball on their end. And it, and it could make business students a lot of money in turn making these athletes a lot of money. That's possible. I, you know, and I, I don't necessarily wouldn't be against it if there was a, a, an actual school partnership there. What happens here when a student athlete gets wrapped up in a product or a brand that puts the program or the university in a light that they don't want to be put in? It's, it's going to happen. Yeah, now, it is. And the University of Illinois just put this out a little while ago. They said that their policy at the University of Illinois says adult entertainment, sports betting, uh, cannabis, vaping, and alcohol are all prohibited. You cannot endorse anything or partner with any of those businesses. I think that's a pretty good rule, but if not, you know, if not every school adopts that, you're going to see some real questionable things there that people are willing to partner with what happens when the starting point guard men or women you know mm -hmm. does a, a calendar photo shoot and that's not going to be something that the school really want you know the school's going to want to distance itself from yeah. that but it's entitled I what happens when the when the uh the starting quarterback does weekly appearances at the bar you know does does weekly radio hits from the local bar and everyone's hammered around them that's going to be something that's going to come up. I've already seen, actually, on Twitter that Dave Portnoy, the president of Barstool, yes. has announced at least at least 15 new athletes to be what you know hashtag Barstool athletes. And Barstool is known, you know, by and the people who hate risque. it as risque, misogynistic. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't like mm -hmm. Barstool, and here are athletes flocking to it when a lot of schools would probably be running away from it. So, all of this stuff is going to happen and for as good as this legislation is there are some real perils to this too Indeed. it's the brady farkas show right here on wdev am and fm and wdevradio.com thanks to intern jack for hanging out with us download the full show podcast on apple podcasts and on spotify thanks to sticks and stuff and swan lumber dinner jazz comes up for 90 minutes after the cbs news update and then we've got racing at the nation's site of excitement our own lee cattell and nick mumley from the inside groove at thunder road tonight the independence day celebration fireworks after the race late models uh flying tigers street stocks they're all in action that's tonight on wdev am and fm and wdevradio.com